Yo, this is Immortal Technique. Right now, you're listening to KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. Revolutionary commentary. You know what it is. KPFK bringing you the realness. Peace. Harlem streets stay flooded in white powder. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, Zapatista January series grand finale, Black Girls in Suicide commentary with Dr. Sakibu Hutchison. The U.S. and Germany have approved sending their main battle tanks to Ukraine. Palestine's foreign ministry has called on the West to pressure Israel to stop the demolition of a village in the occupied West Bank. A tribute to David Cosby and more. Coming up. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. KPFK producer Alicia Vargas concludes the series on Zapatista January, what it is and how does L.A. commemorate it. The Zapatista movement continues to inspire communities and organizers to work towards self-determination. This couple is doing it in a very unique way. Not only do they follow the basic tenets of the Zapatista movement in their own lives, incorporating them into everything from how they grow their food to how they raise their children, but they are also staying in resistance by the preservation of none other than seeds. I met Malinal Xochitl, their two boys, and Omeat, who were supporting the event. And we spoke about how they practice this resistance on the daily in their lives and how they are deeply inspired by the Zapatistas. Recovering a lot of our ancestral seeds, saving the seeds, using the seeds, so through agriculture and food, through the practice of incorporating those foods into our traditions, removing what was imposed within our traditions by implementing what the tradition calls for prior to colonization. My family are a family of farmers. From Mexico to the Saguntin Valley, when we moved back to the city, continued here with agriculture. About nine years ago, we started a space called Zapotepec as an indigenous-based agricultural school and research center. But the landowners wanted the land back, so we had to give it back. But we just recently, about four months ago, acquired another half an acre, so in Boyle Heights. Now we named it El Semillero based on Zapatista principios. And there we practice indigenous-based agriculture. We also raise chickens for eggs, and we're opening the market to help sustain ourselves in the local community with fresh food grown in the community. And through the process of Zapotepec, and Semillero was to acquire our own land. And we managed to do that with the permission of the Kitanamuk people, about an hour north of LA. And we purchased 35 acres of mountain land. But we're gonna do what we're doing now at a much larger scale with communal living, water harvesting, snow, agriculture, and reforestation of the mountain land. We also practice hunting along with agriculture. And we've done all of this without grants, nonprofits, without loans of any kind. Everything has been the work and effort of the community involved in doing it. So again, with uh, the Zapatistas as a model for self-sufficiency, autonomy, and self-sustainability, to be completely responsible for ourselves 
and take responsibility for our existence without having to ask los malos gobiernos for anything. It takes longer, so the process took a while, eight years, so we collect the money and then be able to purchase the land. And in exchange, hopefully start an agricultural program with their community because they've since also lost their agricultural capacity. And hopefully we could help reintroduce that into their community as well. Because they are also displaced people. They're not on their ancestral lands anymore because they were displaced in the 50s. So none of them live on their ancestral land. So when we approached them was with the same respect of wanting to take care of that land because we are guests on other indigenous people's lands so we're going to do the best we can to take care of it. Why do you think it's important to stay in resistance? We don't have much choice you know it's a matter of self-respect. I think if we don't resist then we give in so we don't have a lot of options and even if we did it would still be the option you know to resist because we need to raise dignified honorable people children and we have two sons and they need to grow up to know that you know resistance is a way to teach resistance is a way of living it doesn't mean that we live in a bad situation you could resist and still raise a family you could still you could resist and have your own business to fund the projects you do you could resist and not go work for government agencies or institutions. We do it by homeschooling our children, by providing everything for them ourselves so that they don't have to go elsewhere and still provide a model by which we could hold ourselves even within one of the largest capitalist systems in the world. If we could do it here, then it could be done anywhere. And again, Zapatistas, along with Purepecha folks, have given these models of being able to live you know, happy and comfortably and always in resistance. For me as a mother, it's a safety component of it because through that we have food security and we have community. It really is a way of those that are in resistance to stop resisting that pressure and really thrive as a community. So I think that as humans, we all need autonomy. And the only way to, for us at least as displaced Native people, to make sure that our children and ourselves have the ability to take back our autonomy is through resistance, to resisting all the forces that are trying to take it from you or that have. How can folks get involved and what is the best way that folks can help? The difficulty in all of this, as we were just having this discussion earlier, is in building relationships because that's hard. That's harder than growing plants because there's issues of trust, the exterior forces, capitalism, paying rent, bills, whatever it is that, life, right? So, is how do we create something that is long lasting for generations? And we've always felt that developing the things that are tangible, not abstract, tend to last longer and have better response because people could actually, they can come in and work. So they could come to the classes, you know, we're gonna start doing field trips up to the land and do hunting trips for youth and adults, but also water reclamation, identifying edible plants, survival skills, those kinds of things that that I think we've we've lost, you know, as as a whole. El Semillero, 
on Instagram and Unai Tepec. And to add, it's very important for us to come to and support these kind of places. And for Enero Zapatista, we already know that who's showing up is somewhat or if not very well familiar with Los Siete Principios. And because we're so diverse and very different and we've all been corrupted in different ways, por lo menos Los Siete Principios nos ayuda a llegar a un punto en común donde las diferencias pueden crear espacio para todas las diferencias. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. KPFK producer Alicia Vargas concludes the series on Zapatista January, and we are so grateful for her. Thank you for that. Next, a commentary from Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, founder of the Women's Leadership Project. She speaks on black girls and suicide. Poet, playwright, and activist Intasaki Shange's 1975 play for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough was a landmark artistic acknowledgement of the mental health toll racism, sexism, and domestic violence take on the lives of black women. Shange reportedly considered suicide four times before writing her seminal work. Her play was only the second black woman's production to be featured on Broadway after Lorraine Hansberry's 1959 smash, A Raisin in the Sun. Decades later, black female suicide is still a third rail taboo in black communities. It is not difficult to see why. How many times have black folks heard that, quote, black people don't do certain things because only crazy pathological white folks do these things? How many times have black women in particular heard that running to the church, God, Jesus, or faith are the most acceptable antidotes to depression, self-doubt, and suicidal ideation because, quote, God won't give you more than you can handle. How many times have black girls been gaslit into believing that staying prayed up will make the pain and trauma of abuse magically go away? As an atheist and abuse survivor who has struggled with depression and suicidal ideation, hearing the litany of things black people don't do sends my detector into overdrive. The truth is, moralizing about black conformity hinders direct engagement with the mental health risks and challenges we face, especially when it comes to addressing the dramatic increase in suicide among black girls. Aspiring psychologist and 19-year-old college student Ashanti Polk notes that suicide is simply not talked about in our communities. So many black women and girls of all ages are dealing with mental health issues. They're overlooked because we are supposed to be strong and we're supposed to be able to endure what we go through. The prevailing stereotype is that black girls are superwomen in training, strong, ultra-resilient, 24-7 caregivers to everyone, and responsible for lifting up others at all costs. Memes and affirmations that extol black girl magic and black women saving the world may actually obscure the gravity of black female depression. And despite increasing attention to black women's victimization, black men and boys are frequently prioritized in national discourse around violence and self-harm. Picking up on these cues, black girls often see that creative black women or black women who don't conform to gender norms and expectations are marginalized, demonized, and ridiculed. The prevalence of these messages is precisely the reason why rising rates of black female suicide remain under the radar. According to Time magazine, 
suicide rates among white people in the U.S. declined from 2019 to 2020, contributing to a 3% overall drop in suicide deaths in that time period. But there were no statistically significant declines in suicide rates for black Americans or other Americans of color. In fact, for some racial or ethnic groups, rates increased from 2019 to 2020. Among black youth and adults in particular, suicide rates have climbed steadily over the past two decades. From 2003 to 2019, suicide among black girls increased by 59%. The biggest increase occurred among 12 to 14-year-old girls. What is happening in this age group? Normalized sexual violence and sexual harassment play a big role. Racist, sexist social media targeting, as well as an overall lack of protection for black girls experiencing gender violence in elementary and middle school are also factors. From a very early age, black girls are subjected to a steady drumbeat of anti-black misogyny in mainstream media and music. Black girls are oversaturated with toxic imagery that brands them as bitches, hoes, and thoughts, along with the constantly evolving array of sexist, colorist, body-shaming, and victim-blaming epithets. According to the Black Futures Lab 2019 census, African Americans overall are also more likely to identify as LGBTQ plus than our non-Black folks. Thus, constant exposure to homophobic and transphobic imagery and language are also major mental health stressors for Black youth. In addition, the pandemic has been especially traumatic for black girls who must shoulder the burdens of caregiving, schoolwork, jobs, and surviving rampant sexual and domestic abuse. Rising rates of gun homicide among black girls and women attest to this toll. Culturally responsive resources and safe spaces that are specifically and unapologetically tailored to meet the needs of black girls are critical. In addition, queer safe spaces have been proven to provide youth with greater motivation to stay in school, graduate, and go on to college and careers. Similarly, gender and racial justice-oriented campus and community organizations that promote civic engagement, activism, mentoring, well-being, professional development, college readiness, and career paths can provide safe spaces to combat depression and isolation among black girls in particular and black youth in general. As 20-year-old Women's Leadership Project peer educator and activist Jayden Taylor argues, we cannot handle everything the world throws at us, including prejudice, gender inequality, and stereotypes with a smile on our faces and a pat on the back. We need mental health care and a system set in place for young black girls struggling with depression. If we cannot speak about our mental health issues at home, then where are we supposed to get help for free? ourselves. Start paying attention to black girls and listen when we speak because we may be begging for help without saying help. Some mental health resources for African-American girls and young women nationwide include the organization Black Girls Smile, the Standing for Black Girls Wellness Initiative, the Wellness Action Recovery Network, Sadie Nash Leadership Project, and therapy for black girls. I'm Sakibu Hutchinson with the Women's Leadership Project, reporting for Rebel Alliance News. The revolution will not be televised. 
Brazil, along with Argentina, is one of the largest economies in the Western Hemisphere, outside of the United States. It is one of the BRICS country, as in Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the basket of nations that represent the world's greatest hope for a new multilateral world. But a speech this past Monday by Brazil's president in Argentina at the CELAC conference left attendees wondering if the president of that rising star has been co-opted by Washington. Don DeBar has more. President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva's participation in the CELAC Summit of Latin American Leaders this week, less than a month after taking office, marked Brazil's efforts to resume a leading role in the region and counter the influence of the U.S. Lula, as he's popularly known, used the occasion to turn the host city of Buenos Aires, Argentina, upside down when he became the first and thus far only member of the BRICS group of nations to criticize Russia's role in the war in Ukraine, comparing it to the U.S. hybrid war against Venezuela. The returning Brazilian president was reported as saying, quote, in the same way that I am against territorial occupation as Russia did to Ukraine, I am against too much interference in the Venezuelan process, closed quote. That statement followed a period where the U.S. government, from the White House to the congressional leadership and security services such as the CIA, threw their support behind the new president of Brazil, warning the outgoing Jair Bolsonaro to stand down the challenge by his supporters to what they called a stolen election. To try to make sense out of all of this, we go to Esteli, Nicaragua, to speak with journalist and political analyst Stephen Sefton. So I was surprised and not surprised to hear that from Lula. I was wondering, and we discussed this earlier, um, what was coming down the pike when we saw the Biden administration and it's CIA, I believe, also, as if there's any space between them, um, you know, uh, in the bag for Lula in the uh, post-election, uh, you know, mud wrestling in Brazil. There was no question that uh, of them uh, throwing with Bolsonaro. They they were clearly with Lula, and I was wondering what had happened since they forced the locals to throw Lula into prison to keep him out of, out of office, got Dilma Rousseff tossed out of office, and, uh, you know, suddenly they're best friends. And we see this thing. Are we looking at basically a co-opting of the uh, post-Chavez uh, uh, movements um, for self-determination, uh, uh, integration, sovereignty, uh, and, and turning it into sort of a, a new administration of the empire. Yeah, and Don, I tend to sympathize with that point of view, um, right or wrong. But I mean, it's, it's, there, there, there are lots of kind of things that, there, there, there are various nuances to it. Um, and Lula, uh, who, who knows, and Lula has developed over the years, and the, I, I, I think it's a mistake to think that the Lula of today is the same Lula of 15 years ago, or 2000, when, when did he, he get, when, when his first period of office, 2006? I yeah, ways back, yeah. And, and so he's not the same politician now as he is then, I know, starting to state the obvious, really. 
But what does that mean? And, and, and as you point out, and, and as I, I think I remarked in our last conversation, it's simply absurd to think that Lula would have won the election, which he did, against Jair Bolsonaro, right. not by a very narrow margin, um, if he hadn't had the help and backing of a big chunk of the Brazilian elite. And that Brazilian elite is obviously part of the uh, Brazilian political uh, scene that is uh, very sympathetic to the US Democrat Party. Right. So, um, so what does that mean? I'm, I mean, it's, 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 it's not, there's no straightforward answer to that. Because, for example, you get Lula saying, as he did uh, the other day, um, comparing or he, he, he compared the US and Euro European hybrid war against Venezuela. Right. He seemed to draw a parallel between that and what he termed the Russian occupation of Ukraine. Right, right. Is, you know, and, and there's an interesting contradiction there because uh, d during Bolsonaro's administration, when the United States was touring the world, twisting arms, looking for condemnation from everyone they can of Russia's position there, uh, the, the BRICS countries, including Bolsonaro's Brazil, stood back. They gave a little lip service. Maybe a vote here and there, but they did not join that bandwagon, and 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 that surprised me too, by the way. But right. but I mean, there, there was there was a, that contradiction, and now it seemed like I don't know. Lula has got, got at least one foot in where Bolsonaro had pulled one out. Yeah, and then but then again, and and I think one of the key things it's much too simple to say, oh well, Salak's just going to turn into. Um, uh, a, a kind of uh, neo-colonial tool um, managed at one remove by the elites in Europe and North America. And I think right. it's much too simple. To, that's much too Agreed. simplistic. Because um, the, even the right wing that tends to sympathize with the United States um, foreign policy and tends to serve United States policy. And they they have the dilemma of that their economic interests are not served, uh, their, their, their economic interests are, are served much better by working with China. And you can see that, um, again, with Lula. I and mean, Lula's just had a meeting with the um, very right-wing leader of Uruguay, hmm. Lacal Paul. Right, right. Um, and they're talking about uh, and and you you may recall in previous conversation we talked about the internal divisions and arguments inside Mercosur, which consists of Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay, because Uruguay wants to negotiate a bilateral treaty with China, right. and which is against Mercosur's rules. Right. But in the in the meeting that Lula just had with Lacalle Pau, um, they they. Uh, Lula mooted the the idea of discussing precisely uh, a Mercosur-China free trade agreement. Right. So, uh, so you have these the this kind of mixed messaging coming out of out of the the the, the, the region's main leaders. You know, yeah. Al Alberto Fernandez, for example, um, will uh, apparently take a stand in defence of Cristina. Uh, uh, Fernandez de Kirchner 
um, when she's under attack from the, the right-wing institution, the right-wing controlled institutions, especially the judiciary, of course, in Argentina. Yeah. But then he'll kind of uh, go out of his way to make nicey-nice with um, the United States over other issues. And one of the things that she was... I thought was very telling about the select summit and and confirmed my kind of pessimistic outlook my generally pessimistic outlook for the future of select as a as a as a body embodying the patria grande the emancipation of latin america finally from uh north american and european colonial interventions when uh President Maduro of Venezuela uh, decided not to participate because he couldn't be sure that uh, the, there wouldn't be some kind of attempt by the Argentine under the Argentine legal system to uh, make a move against him on the basis of the measures that have been introduced against him by the United States. Right. Um, right. So, and, and Alberto Fernandez could not guarantee. The, the 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 integrity the and and the 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 free participation of President Maduro in the Salak summit in Buenos Aires. What right. does that mean? Yeah, you know. And so um, and then of course you've got um the uh, the kind of the the two to the can't quite make up his mind. Uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who one minute is saying he's criticizing the United States for being interventionist, yeah. and the next thing is he's recommending to the region to reach some kind of trade and economic economic accommodation with with North America. Right. So, and it's the, the we're, we're we're in a moment of of a lot of uncertainty, um, and it, it and it, my feeling is that we're likely to see CELAC becoming a kind of stultifying rather than a, an, an emancipatory body in in the short term. That may change in the future, but certainly in the short term, I see its influence as being mainly stultifying um, in sharp contrast to the extraordinary dynamism that it had uh, when uh, our Comandante Eterno Hugo Chavez was alive. Yeah. Well, not one one good thing that came out of the CELAC summit was that um, Ralph Gonsalves, the Prime Minister of um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, yeah, I mean. now has the pro tempore presidency of CELAC, and that's encouraging. But given the, the, the weight, the sheer weight and economic power of Mexico, um, Brazil and Argentina, it's, it's, it's hard to see how even somebody with a lot of vision like Ralph Gonzalez is going to make much headway um, developing CELAC as a, as, as a truly independent um, regional body. We're gonna, and we're going to have to watch that develop over the coming year uh, as they close that uh, conference out for this year. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks a million, Don. Look forward to it. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK, the Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Following months of pressure from NATO neighbors and Kiev, Germany has reportedly approved sending its main battle tanks to Ukraine. RT's Rachel Blevins has the details. 
Germany has reportedly caved in and approved sending its main battle tanks to Ukraine after months of resisting pressure from NATO allies in Kiev. This decision, which has not yet been officially announced, has already been condemned by some German politicians. The left party co-chair in parliament says that the move would bring us closer to World War III. The delivery of Leopard battle tanks, which lifts another taboo, potentially takes us closer to World War III than towards peace in Europe. The decision to continue making Germany a war party doesn't have the support of the majority of the population. Leopard tanks are the prelude to a possible slide towards a catastrophe. At least 14 German Leopard tanks will reportedly be provided to Ukraine, and several other Western countries say they're ready to send even more. Berlin is also expected to allow Poland to hand over some of its German-made Leopards to Kiev. Berlin had previously stopped short of providing such heavy weapons to Ukraine over fears of being seen as a party to the conflict and provoking Russia. Some of the critics in Berlin say that the German government is more worried about pleasing its NATO allies while ignoring what the move could spell for Germans who still remember the tragedy of the Second World War. This is an interesting approach that you are taking here. German tanks against Russia and Ukraine. Your grandfathers already tried that, by the way, back then with Melnik and Bandera. And what was the result? Unspeakable suffering, millions of deaths on both sides, and in the end, Russian tanks here in Berlin. Two of them are even here, standing outside. You should walk past them every morning and remember that. We are constantly pressing the government in Berlin to make them share their leopards. I would urge my German colleagues uh, to do that. If you can meet a, a need that the Ukrainians have, uh, then you know we obviously want to see you do that. Labor and human rights lawyer Dan Kovalik says it's clear that Berlin didn't want to send its tanks to Ukraine, but was forced to do so by the U.S. and its allies. It's disheartening from a number of perspectives. First of all, it's just going to add fuel to the fire. It's just going to lead to the deaths of more Ukrainians and more Russians and most likely won't uh, change the outcome of the war. But also it has to be seen as a sad day for Germany, who had said it was not going to send the tanks. And clearly the U.S. pressured Germany to do so. It has to be seen as a green flag to countries that want to intervene more into this war. So it's a bad sign. It's a sign the West is going to continue to double down on its uh, military support of Ukraine, again, which will do nothing but increase the suffering of the Ukrainian people. It seems to me that all of this is going against the interest of Germany. They've pretty much shot themselves in the foot by forgoing uh, Russian natural gas, which, of course, Angela Merkel begged Putin for, begged for the Nord Stream 2 to be built. You know, so none of this is to the advantage of Germany. It seems to me that Germany is doing all this out of pressure from the United States. The Biden administration announced on Wednesday that it will send 31 M1A1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine in a reversal after hesitating for weeks. Palestine's foreign ministry has called on the West to pressure Israel to stop the demolition of a village in the occupied West Bank. The plea comes after residents of that village came out to protest against its destruction as part of the Israeli plan to destroy so-called illegal buildings. Locals have voiced their fury over the move. 
Our people came today to tell Netanyahu, Ben Gavir, and all the extremist right-wing officials that this land is Palestinian. We did not allow the destruction of Al Khan Al Ahmar. This government, led by Netanyahu and Ben Gavir, will go to the dustbins of history, and the Palestinian flag will continue to fly on this land. We existed on this land before the Israeli government came and occupied it. A message to the Israeli occupation, we will not leave this place. This is our property, and we will remain here. We are afraid that Al Khan Al Akmar may be demolished because of Ben Vir's actions. His electoral campaign was to demolish Al Khan Al Akmar, and he is now forced to do so. Mustafa Barghouti is the head of the Palestinian National Initiative Party. He says that the goal of the current Israeli government is to expel Palestinians from their land. If Al Khan Al Ahmar, Sheikh Jarrah, or uh, Masaf Riyatta are subjected to the process of ethnic cleansing that Ben Gvir and other extremists in the Israeli government want to do, if that happens, this will lead definitely to an explosion. Because it will be perceived, first of all, as an act uh, of beginning uh, the annexation of the West Bank and the total destruction of the, any potential for a Palestinian independent state. This is also another act that would kill uh, any potential for the so-called two-state solution. So, in my opinion, these are very dangerous acts and they should be stopped immediately. And they can be stopped only with Palestinian resistance on the ground, as well as a serious international pressure on Israel, threatening it with boycott, divestment, sanctions, if it does not stop these processes of ethnic cleansing and annexation. But more than that, uh, this Israeli government includes people who are described even in Israel as fascists. They are very extreme. Their goal is really to destroy any potential for peace. And they continue to declare that the whole of Palestine, historic Palestine, is exclusive for Jewish people. So practically, they reflect what, what can be called as Jewish supremacy and a system of apartheid and racism against Palestinians. Their real goal, their dream, which will not be fulfilled, I hope, is to expel Palestinians from their land. And the question here is not only to Israel, but also to countries like the United States and Europe. Why do you use double standard? Why, during 55 years of military Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, as well as 75 years of ethnic cleansing, not a single sanction was used against Israel. Allowing Israel to be above the law, above international law, imperative to uh, responsibility in front of international law, this has led to the creation of the most extreme racist government in the history of this region. And that is one of the direct results of this international behavior that continues to use double standards when it comes to Palestinian issues. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. As the Los Angeles County homeless population count is underway, here is more from the Freedom Ride with Los Angeles Community Action Network. We have Craig, who is a part and advocate for Los Angeles Community Action Network, LA Canned, where you will find them downtown on Skid Row doing the hard work for 
our homeless and unhoused communities. I'm Angela Birdsong here at the Freedom Ride, Riding for Rights, downtown Los Angeles, Skid Row. And I have Craig R., who is a human and civil rights organizer for LA Can, Los Angeles Community Action Network. Craig, tell me, how did you get connected with LA Can and why are you here today? Which may be obvious because of what you do, but tell us why. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, power to the people, everybody. And uh, the, the way I became connected with LA Can was I started volunteering, started attending meetings in the uh, ROC meetings, that's ROC, Residential Organizing Committee. This was on Friday nights. And uh, then you got deeper and deeper in the work. That was like uh, six, seven years ago. Got deeper and deeper in the work and became uh, one of the main organizers in the Human and Civil Rights, along with our uh, leader of the Human and Civil Rights Committee, uh, General Dogon. And um, the reason I'm here today is uh, we're in this crisis of evictions, and uh, criminalization of the homeless, and uh, it spread, the criminalization has spread all over the city. We have uh, almost four people a day dying because of the uh, conditions of the homeless as well as the conditions of uh, the pandemic. So uh, it's time to uh, power up and, and um, make this fight back organization, which is what LA Can is, a fight back organization make it more relevant to people on the street and uh, help them survive uh, this critical period we're going through because the, all this pandemic and this nonsense will end, but will, what our question is, will, how, will the homeless situation ever end? And what do you think? Do you think the homeless situation will ever end? I, I think that because of the corruption in city government as well as, uh, which is con city government is controlled by the developers, and because of the corruption that we see that's now legendary, L L.A. is the most corrupt city in the whole country, past surpassing even Chicago. Uh, because of that corruption, I'm very pessimistic on when the um, homeless situation might be improved, let alone solved. I think it'll take a, quite a long time and a lot of pressure from us and a lot of organizing and a lot of uh, fight back for this situation to be addressed in any meaningful way. How long have you been in Los Angeles? My entire life. Oh, okay, so you're a native Angelino. I was born and raised, born on the east side, that's right. Born at County Hospital. So you saw the, the movement and the, and the evolve, the, how Skid Row evolved to what it is today. Yeah, well Skid Row, in, in one sense is what it's always been, meaning it, uh, it dates back over a hundred years to uh, an area for the working poor and uh, the railroad work workers in the early 20th century. And Skid Row has evolved over time to be, uh, have a lower and lower economic base, have a base that uh, is really strictly now poor people and homeless people. But um, the, the Skid Row is just a symptom and an, an example of what's going on generally now. If you notice, the homelessness and the tents have spread all across the entire city, whereas they used to just be in Skid Row. Now they're everywhere. 2,000 homeless in Venice. You know, 2,000 homeless in, in Hollywood. You know, it's all over the city, all over downtown in general. Besides Skid Row, 
and all over Southern California. And uh, the reason is because, as, as the report showed, we're about 550,000 affordable housing units short of what's needed. We have, in the county, we have over 60,000 people sleeping on the street, over 40,000 of them in uh, L.A. City. L.A. County is over 60,000, and the situation is just growing worse and worse. More women and children appearing in the situation, and that's alarming all by itself. The fact that there are more women and children, the most vulnerable, as well as uh, old people like myself. Thank you so much for your time. And my last question is, if people find themselves on the brink of becoming... Homeless, unhoused. What should they do? They should contact the social uh, justice fight back organization, back, fight back organizations like LA Can, who can uh, uh, give them advice on their immediate situation, hook them up with uh, help immediately, as well as uh, tell them how they can organize themselves. Because individual and community empowerment is the only answer what we call fight back is the only answer for this situation so no matter how bad your situation is remember somebody else is in a worse situation and uh, that you need to organize in order to have the empowerment to do something about it okay thank you angela birdsong reporting for radio justice at the freedom ride for housing downtown los angeles martin luther king day Next, Dan Noman with a tribute to David Cosby. Singer, songwriter, and guitarist David Van Cortland Crosby has passed. He is most known for his work as one of the founders of the groups The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in the 1960s. He was born in Los Angeles in 1941, the son of an Academy Award-winning cinematographer. After dropping out of Santa Barbara City College, he performed with other artists including Terry Callier and had a brief stint with legendary Capitol Records lounge music artist Les Baxter, who had a folk group called Les Baxter's Balladeers. He joined the Birds in 1964, and their first number one song was a cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. In 1968, he joined Stephen Stills, who came from Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash from the Hollies to form Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which was the name of their debut album. The following year, with Stephen Stills' insistence, Neil Young, his fellow bandmate and guitarist from Buffalo Springfield, joined the band and then became Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Their second gig was at the Woodstock Music Festival during the Summer of Love, 1969. They also performed at the Monterey International Pop Festival and at the Altamont Free Concert. They recorded the number one album, Deja Vu, which included classics not only Woodstock, but other hits such as Our House and Teach Your Children. Our house is a very, very, very fine house. Teach 
The band's working relationship was on and off for its entire duration, yet they managed to continue recording either as CSN or CSNY and do full-scale tours in 1974, 2000, 2002, and 2006. They reunited for Live Aid in 1985 and primarily at Neil Young's Bridge School Benefits in the 80s and 90s. They performed a benefit concert along with Tom Morello for the Sierra Club at the Nokia Theater in Los Angeles in the early 2010s. Ride, ride over this afternoon and give them a piece of my mind about peace for mankind. Peace is not an awful lot to ask. Graham Nash and David Crosby, live in our New York studio just a few days after singing at Occupy Wall Street. Always politically aware, whether it was as peace, human rights, or environmental activists, the band will also be remembered for their classic Ohio, which was about the massacre of students at an anti-war protest on the campus of Kent State University. Crosby briefly appeared on the small screen and big screen as an actor, including the Roseanne TV show, recorded with the group Crosby, Pavar, and Raymond, and even sang backup vocals on numerous projects. One of the most familiar would be Phil Collins' Another Day in Paradise. He also enjoyed a solo career, recording his last album called For Free in 2021. He's a two-time inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Birds, as well as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. In 2000, singer Melissa Etheridge announced that Crosby was the sperm donor of their two children with her partner, Julie Seifer. Bandmates Stephen Stills and Graham Nash, as well as friends Carol King, Brian Wilson, and others continue to share tributes to him. He will most be remembered for his writing and singing contributions with the beautiful vocal melodies of those legendary songs. R.I.P. David Crosby. This is Dan Nowman for Rebel Alliance News on KPFK. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar Tips. The Black College Expo is coming to Los Angeles at the L.A. Convention Center, Saturday, January 28th, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Go to thecollegeexpo.org for more info. Save a date for a Black History Month extravaganza, Yaba's African and Caribbean Cultural Festival at the Torrance Civic Center, Saturday, February 25th, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Call 562-833-8294 or check out yabamedia.com. That's Y-A-B-A-Media.com for details to celebrate Black History Month the Pan-African way. Math-minded programs are hosting a free webinar, the Halftime Huddle, 13 Plays to Go In for the Win, to help you set up the second half of the school year 
or your next math class. Catch these webinars on January 20 on January 30th, 31st and February 4th on Zoom. Go to iammathminded.com to register. These are your calendar tips for the Rebel Alliance News. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. We're excited to bring back progressive news to Southern California and connect with the local community. If you want to become part of our news show, if you have stories or comments, ideas, please email us at news at kpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. I'm Angela Birdsong. It's 9 a.m. Saturday mornings on KPFK, and it's the Earl O'Foray Hutchinson Show. From Los Angeles to New York and all around the world, it's blockbuster news and information on the Earl O'Foray Hutchinson Show, 9 a.m. to 11, Saturday mornings on KPFK. My name is uh, Leon. I've come up listening to KPFK. It's just, it's wonderful. I really got into it with Roy's show, Midnight to Six, Roy of Hollywood. Learned so much. It's an education. Just wonderful. It's one of the dangers of KPFK. When you turn it on, if you're into it, there's nothing else going to go on. But, uh, yeah, this is just a great place. Love